Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another awesome episode of This Is Not Church. Uh, awesome. That seems presumptuous on my part. Welcome to another episode of This Is Not Church. You can decide later if it was awesome. Um, I can tell you that based on the the guest we have booked today, um, it, it, it can't not be great. So, But my name is Nat. As as always, my brother John is with me. You want to say hi, John? Hi, John. You did it, you I son of it. a <laughs> oh, you, God, I thought we were over the hi, John crap, but well, I guess we're not. But You lob it, anyway. I get it out of the park. I know. You be. just can't resist. You're like, nope. if, you're like, the, what was that scene from that movie, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, when they found the tunes by going, da, 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 and they couldn't resist going, bom, bom, you know, yep. you're that guy. You're that, you're, you're basically a tune, John, who can't resist anything. But anyway, hey, um, we digress as we always do. Yeah. Um, because we're nothing if not silly. Um, but uh, with us today, uh, an unexpected, surprise, amazing um, guest, somebody that I have uh, paid attention to for quite some time, who I find to be brilliant, um, and who is, uh, ironically enough, in a band called The Brilliance. Uh, th- we have David Gunger on the podcast with us today, and man, I, I could not be more excited. David is a, a, a musician, an artist, um, an activist, um, involved with all kinds of stuff. I'll let him tell you about that. Um, but I became aware of him uh, for the first time when our good friend Brian Zahn featured one of his songs on his annual Finding God in My iPod series. And it was the song Brother, which I'm sure we'll talk about for for a minute here at some point. Um, and then I was hooked, man. I was actually supposed to go see you um, in Waco, Texas a few years ago, and it, it, I just couldn't make it happen. You were at a, a little place called um, a little coffee house in Waco. Um, the name common of which, grounds. common grounds, common grounds. Yeah. My friend got to go, my friend Trey got to go and, um, did the whole VIP thing and hung up with you guys before. And I was like, oh, I'm so jealous, man. So <laughs> screw him. I get to talk to you face to face sort of. So, um, welcome, <laughs> welcome to the podcast, David. How are you today, brother? I'm well, Nat and John, it's good to be with you. I like seeing brotherly love. It's good to see two brothers actually. <laughs> enjoying talking to one another and laughing, ribbing each other. It's, it's quite nice. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you've got a couple brothers of your own, at least, that I'm aware of. Uh, one yeah. lives in Marfa, not too far from us. And then, obviously, Michael, um, I'm not sure where he's at these days. He's in L.A., yeah. He's in L.A., oh, so yeah. he's one of those guys. He's a SoCal dude. Uh, three brother-in-laws, so I'm, I'm wow. four okay. brothers, you know. Right on. So, uh, hence the the title track, the, <laughs> this song. Yeah. No. Um, so, hey, well, we've mentioned, brother, let's just go ahead and jump right there because uh, we've mentioned it. But um, that song, um, John was talking about this. He was actually trying to incorporate it into a, into a set at his church for worship. And it's a deceptively difficult song to play. It's, it, it's, it's one of those songs I always find, I find it interesting that artists like you can write songs that on their surface seem like simple. But, man, there, there's a lot of complexity to that song. Um, but lyrically, man... Talk to, uh, if you don't mind, talk about the uh, the the impetus for that. You I know mean, what what brought that about for you. So, my partner in the brilliance is a guy named John Art, and similar similarly to the John that's on this podcast, he he would definitely, especially when we started the brilliance, he was sort of outside of the church world completely, and it wasn't started as anything trying to be necessarily even religious. What had happened was John and I played music together since we were little kids. 
And our first band was called the Rockin' Jammers. And then uh, we ended up in high school or in college going to school in West Michigan. And we started playing um, like these little shows that were essentially like both of us as songwriters really influenced by bands like uh, Benfold Five or Death Cat for Cutie, that type of thing. And so we were writing more, I don't know, existential pop love songs. And we had a little band called The Brilliance and The Flyer. And then when I, uh, I got married and I worked at a church down in Tulsa, I moved from Michigan to Tulsa to be near our families. My wife's family is in Oklahoma City. My parents are in, in Tulsa. I ended up not doing music for a while. I played bass for my brother, but I wasn't doing as much songwriting. And then at my church, we were definitely shifting at the time from a more classically like non-denominational uh, church world to, to moving towards more historical rooted orthopraxy. So for within the church, it really started focusing on the Eucharist more as the central point of the gathering. Um, every week they started saying like the Lord's Prayer and then it moved into the liturgy, kept on evolving over years. And for my youth group kids, uh, a lot of the formation was around things like, uh, you know, praying the hours and different contemplative practices. And I ended up, Wanting to have, and at the time, I think for music, the biggest thing, like popular wise for youth groups, was probably like Hillsong United. Yeah, for sure. And um, I'm not like going against that at all, but it wasn't, I was trying to lead, lead like high schoolers to a place of like quiet, <laughs> trying yeah. to, and it just, the music didn't really reflect that. Um, and so I wanted to write some music specifically for my own church context that would lead people to that place of quiet. And so the first album that I did, I wanted to base it around a string quartet. My wife is a violinist and my, all of my brother-in-laws, they all, every Christmas we would get together and they put music in front of them. And in my family, we would do this game, but it would be like, you know, piano, bass and guitar or you'd maybe switch instruments on that, but they're switching from like violin to cello or cello to violo, or then they're going over to piano or to guitar or whatever it is. And I remember I had to play music with them and I thought I would like to actually be able to play some music with them that um, I don't feel so intimidated by. Right. And so uh, in order to do that, I contacted my friend, John, who was in music school at the university of Texas and I said, I want to do this record around a string quartet. And I want to, usually in pop world, you record strings as like a filler thing or secondary. So you do, you know, you record all your rhythm tracks and your scratch tracks, and then you build. And at the end, usually you put strings. But I said, I for the first record, I wanted to do it around a string quartet would be kind of a featured instrument. And so we did that. And it was cool because we got some response to it as an independent artist who was brand new called it the brilliance only because John was such a big part of it in writing the string parts. So I didn't want to just call it David Gunger. Um, and then we ended up doing some 
uh, I did an Advent album and a Lent album that was kind of around that. And at the time, while that was happening, it was getting some momentum and the band and listeners was expanding and from like a touring perspective expanding. We kept on writing music and people would be like, I love that you're writing great Catholic music. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> Catholic, but thank you. Um, or they, you know, they'd say, we love that you're writing such great like liturgical reform music. And I, I'm like, I'm not reformed, but thank you. And that, that was that theme of people um, connecting to the music through their own like faith tradition. For sure. And while that was happening, John and I, John had already fully like gone to a different place in his worldview and faith. But at the time, I was kind of going through a classic, um, just growing up and evolving in your faith. And there's a there's a professor that I love here in New York um, named Dr. McPherson, and he would talk often about the the threefold path of like all religion or spirituality. And he, you know, one of the in our Western view of this, we would say like the threefold path looks like uh, you you build up and then you uh, kind of deconstruct and then reconstruct. In in the Jewish faith, you would say um, as a child, you teach your kids to read something like Proverbs, and it's it's really like this thing where it's like okay, you get all this great wisdom, and then the next path of wisdom. Um, is you get them to read Ecclesiastes, <laughs> which is like a different <laughs> type of wisdom yeah. Proverbs. And then as an adult, you get them to read Song of Solomon. And it's kind of this threefold path that so many religions follow of like in, you know, it's in literature, it's in philosophy, it's in all these different things where you'll have like in, in literature, you'd have your thesis, your anti-thesis, and then your synthesis. And always on those three full paths, it's not that one, they're not even against each other because it, it's always in that flow of spirituality. And for me, I was definitely on that second path, if you would. And so during that time of that second path, we got contacted about uh, by a record label that said, hey, we would love to take some of the music that you've done and like release it. But while we release it, it would be nice to have some new songs as well. And I talked to John about it. And John at that point already, before Brother came out, he's like, man, I don't want to do church music. I'm not, it's not my zone. Um, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. And so we had some like good conversation around it. And, and eventually we were like, well, what, what would you want to do if we were, if we were going to do this? Like, what would make this work? And, one of the conversations that we were having very honestly was like, well, what would he want if someone was going to sing something? He doesn't want to, the idea of singing like how great is our God is like our God is better than your God or whatever right, it is. Right. just felt like kind of off to him. But I was diving into um, peacemaking a lot around my, as specifically at that time, the thing that kept on, grabbing my attention during that phase of my own spiritual imagination was peacemaking. And specifically peacemaking for me was my discipleship in the 21st century of what it looked like to find God 
was to find God in the other, or in the stranger or the unintelligible. And I ended up having all, all these conversations with John, and we uh, one night he was sitting at the piano and um, very simply wanted to do something that was very kind of a simple, almost like mantra or chant. And the thing that he sang was, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. And we loved that. And then as far as like the verse and the, the other stuff goes, um, uh, the bridge, uh, I, I kind of had, uh, I had a trip to see the Pope in a seat. This is a wild, weird side tangent, but <laughs> I got to go to the, the Pope in Italy as a guest and this like weird thing. And I, I flew to a CC beforehand and I was very inspired by the entire, um, a CC experience. And one of the phrases that had caught my attention was the garment of courage, like forgiveness is a garment of courage. And so that was, I know it sounds odd, but you're like, well, how are those leaders coming from? What's the story behind that? It's like this giant connection of trips to the Middle East with then trips to Italy with then trying to figure out, um, trying to figure out a way that if we were going to write a song for a church, like what would we want a group of people to be talking about or saying? So that was kind of the story of brother. We ended up doing that album and then, from that record label, oddly enough, we had said on the next one, Hey, we want to do a, uh, we want to do like a non, we're moving away from Christian music. So the cool thing about brother was, uh, you could be walking in like an airport or by a Starbucks and Starbucks would be playing brother. And we liked, we liked going to places and being like, Oh, we're not just labeled like a worship or a Christian thing. It was something that, uh, went past those boundaries. However, the label that we were a part of had no experience within like a, a, a more uh, broad music scene. It was so niche. They did what they did really well, but they they weren't built to have you know radio and different things. So we ended up um, getting out of that deal, which was great. And from there. Uh, we started doing these things called suites, which when John and I were talking again, we kind of had moved from, okay, at first making liturgical art and then from liturgical art into peacemaking and protest music. And I was doing a lot of protest music at the time of when what are you protesting? Well, we talked about a lot of different things, but the first thing was like learning how to listen, learning how to shut up. This was before the 2016 election was we really felt like our, our emphasis needed to be around protest music. And then, uh, then in the last few years, we ended up morphing into, we had toured and we had done stuff and we felt like we're getting into our thirties. Do we want to still do music? When we've done music for like 10 years, it just feels like, what are we doing? Are we playing like something that just is like, what is it? Cause neither of us wanted to be like, big rock stars or famous or anything like that. We just love creating art and especially together. Um, but then it ended up into our thirties. We're kind of we're having this big existential question again of like, will we still do the brilliance or what will we do? And a good friend of ours 
said, what, what, what do you guys want to do? He's kind of sat us down about if we were going to like, is this going to be the end for us? And we said, we, we love telling other people's stories, not just like us as songwriters saying how I feel today, uh, but being able to share kind of larger themes. And he kind of commissioned us to, uh, he was working at World Relief at the time and Doc of Dreamers was a large issue. And so we wrote a suite. We called it a suite because we like to be able to do instrumental music as well. And we wrote a suite around Doc of Dreamers and inspired by them called Oh Dreamer. And then we did another suite uh, last year at the beginning of 2020 around the theme, Is This the End of the World? And it was on modern anxiety. And right now I'm continuing to write and make music and we're, we're working on uh, a new record right now that we'll, we'll see what, you know, what happens, but that's, yeah, it kind of catches you up as far as the music side of things goes for the brilliance. And then I started a thing called the good shepherd collective, which is during the pandemic at my own church, I needed to be able to do digital music. And uh, in order to do so, during the pandemic, I called upon a lot of different friends to kind of create sacred art together, sacred music wow. together. So a lot of hymns and original stuff. And we ended up uh, creating like a whole new thing that uh, is called the Good Shepherd Collective. Wow. Well, I, I, that's that's new for me. I have to check it out because, uh, yeah, I hadn't heard of that and I love it. I was, but it did, as before you came on and as I was thinking about the kind of music that I've seen you do, it always strike me, strikes me as it's so collaborative. Like there is this collaborative sense to all of it. And I was, I was going to ask you about this one because I was just flipping around through YouTube today and I found a version of, of brother that was with you and someone called propaganda. Yeah. Um, said, and I don't know if that's a band or if that was an individual, but if that was a group yeah. of people. Propaganda is a, he's a artist in LA. He's an amazing rap artist, hip hop artist. That, okay. So uh, I wasn't sure if it was him or the, the whole group, but whatever it was, it was what I liked was you took that song and you, you mentioned something when you were just speaking a minute ago about, about um, being willing to listen. Right. And so it starts off with that. Be humble, sit down, yeah. be humble, sit down. And then, Obviously, what he does over the top of, of that song is just brings a whole new level of awesomeness to it. Then it goes to a like full gospel like thing. At the, oh, if you haven't seen this, by the way, YouTube this today, like this second, and go check it out. But it's um, was such a it was such a neat thing to see that that theme of brotherhood and looking into the face of somebody that it might I might otherwise consider to be you know an enemy for lack of a better word, and saying no, but there's a common humanity here, um, and then you know, bringing in the Black Lives Matter, you know, mantra at the end. I don't know. I don't know if you want to talk about that, if that was that was something that you all intended to do. Did they reach out to you to do that? Or was that something y'all did collectively? Uh, yeah, so that was, that video specifically that you're talking about was, um, I know this, it sounds very odd when you say this, but I essentially was doing a cover of my own band song for yeah, sure. Yeah, right. And for, uh, for that, using the Good Shepherd Collective. So John, the brilliance has been a part of the collective, okay. but as well as about 20 other artists um, who are all really, uh, if you want to check it out, you can check out the Good Shepherd Music Collective on like Instagram or YouTube. Um, but the, there's, they do, we do these, the last um, 
few months we've done music from where we actually went down outside of uh, outside of El Paso. There's a large studio called Sonic Ranch, and we took like 25 different people and we recorded I think 50 songs in seven days. Wow. And it's just not. It's it's a very uh, another guy named Tyler Chester and I kind of produce and do all of that stuff for Good Shepherd uh, Collective, and then. For brilliant stuff, yeah, we've, uh, John, it's always odd not having, if I'm ever talking about it, it's like John is such a part of that. Everything that I do musically, um, when you talk about like collaboration, is the way that I look at music, for me, is music is like a language. And I grew up in a house that spoke music. So my, my parents, we grew up singing in church and we grew up singing in choirs and, and then in in you know elementary school, we all had to play an instrument, and I remember being a kid. And both my, my brother Michael was a great guitar player, my brother Rob was a great pianist, and so I got stuck playing the bass. And I'd say, "How do I get my bass? How do I get my bass to stop buzzing?" And my brothers would say, "Learn how to not suck." Household <laughs> <laughs> like you, if I wanted to learn how to do something, I had to sit to. I either had to go to a lesson. Um, which I did, or else I had to sit and like for, you know, I remember sitting in middle school and listening to different, you know, bass players from the seventies where I had to try to learn the, the bass line and play that funky music white boy. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like just all, all those little things where you like learn how to play funk or learn how to beat the strings with a pick or learn how to, and that was like what, was fun, but it was also the reason why it was fun was not because I wanted to be like the best bass player, but I want to hang out with my brothers. And the same thing with John, since we were little kids, John is an incredible musician. In order to do that and play music, it was always something where it was like, it's fun to hang. It's fun to be together and speak that language together and share that. So for most of my music, um, I only play music with people I love. And, and it's, it's a very like family affair of the brilliant stuff is like, it's really a family. Same thing with the Good Shepherd Collective is it's a very tight knit, um, kind of mafia style. Like once you're in, <laughs> once you're in, you're, in, right? you're, always in you're always loved. You're yeah. always like, yeah, you're part of the real fam. So every time you, every time they try to leave, you drag them back in again. So exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's funny though. You say that about about playing bass, but that's exactly how John ended up playing bass. No, thanks, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try to make it quick. But the uh, Nat and I um, were raised around music. Uh, our our dad taught us both how to play guitar at a pretty early age. We cut our teeth on Beatles songs and Simon and Garfunkel is basically what we learned on. And uh, but I learned really really fast that I wasn't going to be the guitar player that my brother was or is. But again, like you said, you, you know, you have to pick an instrument in school. And I had tried trumpet, hated it, and then begged my parents to let me play violin. And so Nat and I started playing violin the same year. I'm a year ahead of him. So I jumped to junior high a year before Nat, knowing full well that the, the freaking next year, Nat's going to show up and become first chair violin. And I'm going to have to play wherever behind him. And I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to play second fiddle. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I, I basically, it. I went to uh, the music teacher and said, I want to learn to play that big thing, the stand up bass. And she's yeah. like, okay. 
And we had one bass player at junior high and she's like, okay, you guys are going to go in the other room and he's going to teach you how to play the bass. I got one days of less, one day of lessons to switch from treble clef to bass clef and learn where all the notes were. And then I was just rolling. And, uh, and it's just, you know, it's one of those things, right? It's just kind of all then kind of fits together. So my brother plays guitar, our best flip, our best friend was a drummer. And next thing you know, we're like, well, we got a band. Yeah, so, yeah, so, and that's how, and that's, I mean, and you know, and now we're talking 40 years later, I'm still playing the bass and, uh, I couldn't imagine playing anything else. I I am not, you know, you have a lot of bass players who are frustrated guitar players, right? They rather play guitar, but they, they get put on bass. Yeah. I I can't play guitar to save my life. I I can't never learned. (laughs) Just a bass player. Well, it's because you only have to play one note at a time with the bass, man. You, just, wow. you don't need the one wow. finger. So, boom, boom, boom. I'm just yeah. unless you're less capable. You know. Oh man, no, that's that's amazing. But but so when you say that, um, when you said that lo- that that music is a language, I mean, that immediately resonates with me because John and I grew up similarly in a in a you know in a household that was. I mean, it revolved around music. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was the language. When, when my father and I, in my, you know, formative years, um, found ourselves at odds with one another over stuff, there was always common ground in music. Yeah. And so there was, there was never a place where he was utterly alien to me because at least in that place I knew, well, he's, he can't be all bad. He still does love the Beatles. Okay. So he can't be all bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that one of the things for music that, like you said, it's like even just a, a thing that brings us together so much is that one, if you find melody that is beautiful, even if you don't know the language that it's being sung in, but you have melody yeah. that's beautiful, we can share this moment of transcendence that goes beyond even like language. So it's a shared language of like awe and wonder. And then it does something also to a, to a level of, I think it, it brings healing in a way that we're, that it goes beyond words. So just that shared, right. just as you said, it's like, it's these sacred shared memories. Like a good melody is like a, a sacred me- memory that like we're hearing it the first time and you're like, have I been here before? Have I been, like, what is this? When you talk about this, this how music connects people is interesting, right? So I was at this, uh, my, my son lives in the Dallas area and about, Two blocks from his apartment complex is this little coffee shop slash vinyl shop, which, by the way, brilliant. I mean, yeah. get your latte and shop for records. Oh, yeah. hell yes, I'm in. So I go sit in this little coffee shop, and uh, the guy that owns it is a 70-ish-year-old um, Lebanese man who's been in the United States since the 70s, but I swear to God, you wouldn't know it, right? He's like, you know, the thick accent, the whatever... And we are instantly connected by the Tom Petty record that's playing on the turntable. And I go, oh, I haven't heard that record before. It's, oh, you know, a lot of people haven't heard this one. And we start talking about Tom Petty and the last time he saw him live. And we just thought we'd, none of that other stuff even came into the conversation. And we did briefly talk about how long he'd been here and, you know, how much of a culture shock it was. He said coming to Dallas from Beirut was actually not as big a culture shock as, as you would think, which... <laughs> Both shocked and saddened to me. But to come from Beirut in the late 70s to Dallas was like, eh, it's about the same. Uh, 
but you know, then I sit down, you know, and I have my coffee and, I, and I'm instantly pulled into the, another conversation with two other completely different people. Um, and we start talking about Tom Petty. I'm like, how is Tom Petty uniting people? And it could have been Bruce Springsteen. It could have been anybody, but we just, this, this idea that whatever labels we have for one another, whatever lenses we use to see one another, sometimes music has a way of just breaking all that stuff down. And you're instant friends with somebody when you can find that connection. Uh, it was just a surreal moment, but I don't know. That that just strikes me as, as the power of music. Yeah, I'd be, you know, all art can do that. Like, and specifically when I t- tend to think of art, like the power or the mediums of them. And you're like, which... I love plays, but it's still limited by like, can you understand the language? Can you understand? There's all these things. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes, and that's why I think that orchestras can be so, so powerful is because they're not even reliant on lyrics. But then I think that's also sort of the power for me. My brothers would disagree, but I think the power for John and I of sports, like something like the World Cup or something like, whatever uh, 100%. It is because you're like, I think that can do that shared experience. And it's even more, there's something very powerful to me about like, it's like ordered chaos. It's the perfect yin and gang of like, you can't fully predict, but then you also have these like made up rules of like, it's supposed to be ordered still. Yeah, and there's yeah. something that with group dynamic that it just creates something that I think could be, uh, incredibly uniting for humanity in a very weird way. Yeah, and it, and at the same time, incredibly divisive and tribal. Yes, because <laughs> yes. yeah. if you're you're you know you're a Cowboys fan, get the hell out of here. I, I you're not my people. Um, I had a guy walk into my coffee shop the other day. I'm in West Texas, man, and he yeah. rolls up into for two days in a row. He one day he walked he walked in with a San Francisco Giants hat on. We're instant friends. He and I. Right. Like, I don't care who you are. I don't even care if you're like some like secreted closeted mass murderer. You like the Giants. I like the Giants. Let's talk about baseball. Um, Then he rolled in the next day with a with a 49ers hat. I'm like, all right, you got to be from California. So it can be very uniting and there. But there is also that sort of tribal, you know, like I've carved out my my these are my people over here. And it's all, you know, John somehow in California ends up being a Cowboys fan. I still don't get that at all. But but I I think the more the more tribal. So the more globalism happens, yeah, yeah, the more you need healthy tribalism. Yeah, feeling for sure. Like you belong to someone. So there's obviously the negative tribalism and violence, and it's weaponized in a way that's terrible. But there is also something really beautiful about being like, oh, you're seen and you belong. You're able to go. So one of my favorite weird things is when I travel internationally. I'm a big Green Bay Packers fan because I'm from Wisconsin. And so anytime we've traveled internationally and like the Packers are playing, it's amazing to go find a Packers bar. And you're like, what are you doing in Sydney? Or what are you doing in Paris? And you're from where? You're from like 45 minutes from where I grew up. And you have this like crazy thing of you would never, I would never meet these people anyway, or maybe random random chance. But there's something so beautiful about that community, like that community collective experience experience of kind of having that shared thing, which happens all the time in music. That's the amazing thing about like loving a band or just as you guys said, like the Beatles and, and Paul Simon uh, and Garfunkel. It's like right away, I have a, a point of connection with you right. that we can talk about our favorite songs or our least favorite. And it can become divisive. It can become whatever. But it also is this thing that like unites us 
in a really beautiful way. Yeah. And with music, it doesn't, I mean, I, I, in my experience, it, it, it's not as divisive, you know what I mean? It, it can be, but people oh, might come yeah, to blows depends, over. I think it depends you know, on what. Yeah. Stones yeah. versus Beatles. We might fight about that. All right. Um, so what I, this is going to be a pretty funny, maybe side weird comment, but I do wonder <laughs> sometimes people who get more like divisive about it, if they actually play music or if they just listen to it. Oh, yeah, that's I, a, I have a theory that if you play music, you can still respect musicians who you don't necessarily like their music. Yeah, because you maybe you can, can appreciate. Like, oh, I understand that. I don't. It's not my cup of tea, but I get how yeah. difficult or how. Well, if you don't play music, sometimes if you don't like it, you just don't respect it. Yeah. No, I, I I've experienced it. Like, so think about a guy like Prince, right? Yeah. Who is universally respected as one of the greatest guitar players to ever have lived? I know people who absolutely don't like any of the music he ever produced, if they're musicians at all, they will still, they will still either preface it with or, or, or come after with, but man, what a musical genius. Yeah. yeah. Like there's a respect level and an appreciation for the art. Even if it's like, yeah, it's not my, yeah, it's not my preference. I don't go put on purple rain when I go, you know, jogging, um, yeah. which if you jog for fun, I question all of your life choices anyway. <laughs> um, but but yeah, you're right. I think I think people who do play can go. Yeah, I don't. Man, I'm, I'm not a big. It, it took me a long time to appreciate rap and hip hop, but I'm coming around. I have come around the last. You know, it's still not my preferred, you know, musical style. I don't usually hop in my car and tune to you know that radio station. But man, the the artistry and the skill it takes to do that well is something to be respected like oh, crazy. Yeah. You know, yeah. and. Uh, well, it's like, you know, we, we, this, this, um, I have a few coworkers and we always end up talking about music. It always comes out when we talk about music and, and someone will inevitably ask a question like, okay, you're stuck on an island and you can only oh, listen geez. to three albums. Which album yeah. do you take? And I'm like, that's, I'm sorry. I, I can't answer that question. I just can't. I mean, as a musician and my love of the way musicians do what they do, I can't, ne- I could never, I say, Okay, okay, pick a decade. Can you pick a decade? And nope. I'm like it's like, okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna pigeonhole me into a decade, I was like the seventies, I guess. Because then well they go, why the seventies? I was like, Do you understand? Really? No. Do you understand kidding. the art the artists that you get to pick from? If you get the seventies, you get everything from the Beatles who did put an album out in the seventies, all the way up to bands that we know of now that are really popular that have been around since the seventies. But as a musician, I totally agree with you that you just you have a different perspective on the artistry, right? Um, my wife and I have gone to a few concerts together. I went and saw Santana play, and uh, I, I just I, I go to concerts and I'm a, I'm not the I'm not I'm sitting there trying to figure out why how they did what they do. It was like, why, how did they make that sound? How did they how did they make how did they make that transition? How did they do that? And so I'm the boring guy, like sitting there with my face down, looking at the bass player, watching him going, I don't, I, I, I need to know how he did that. And uh, so a lot of times I'm not like in it the same way someone else is. Right. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can relate to that or not, but uh, it does tend to make us, I guess, less divisive when it comes to this type of music over that type of music, this type, this artistry over that artistry. But yeah, I think we still have our favorites uh, and I think we could list a whole bunch, but. Well, and I don't know. So I think that maybe, and you know, some musician thinks we get snobby, and I can see that we get snobby with one another. We get divisive. So I don't want to just say that it's a blanket statement, but I do think that there is something to when you 
when you see a little bit behind the curtain, the when you see the craftsmanship of something yeah. and you know how it's made, you have a different appreciation for the work that it takes to, to be done with it, right? And in art, I, I kind of have a working creative theory of the way that people approach art if they're if they're you know creators, which would be and this is a, a basic idea of think your left brain, right brain type thing. And usually when yeah. you're thinking in duality, this is easy first to, to think, and then we'll try to exit duality. But the first one will be like, okay, there's the type of craftsperson who um, who who works on a craft and they they're they put in the ten thousand hours of work, right? They do the thing where they're always practicing, they're always focused on how do you do that? You're looking at the technical things of that. You're right. looking at the everything of how something's done creatively in that way, which is awesome. And when you critique a craftsperson about their creative endeavor, usually it can hurt that person personally because they put so much time in, so much effort in, that if you, if you actually critique the art, it can feel like you're critiquing the craftsperson. Versus, you're going to say like the um, the true like artiste tastemaker, who they the difference would be if that's like if one side is your left brain, the other side is your right brain. This type of like caricature of a creative person is like the thing that they're good at is not being the best singer, or or maybe they are the best singer, but they're not the best songwriter, they're not whatever it is. They're kind of this supernova of creativity in moments. And they know good taste. Or even if they don't know good taste, they create good taste. Or what's popular. And so what will happen is, if you have someone that's like, someone that's a craftsperson that you're critiquing, they feel that personally. If you critique a supernova like that, they're like, well, you just don't have good taste. You just don't know. They might not be the best guitar player. They might not be the best at whatever it is. They actually have to work on their craft. But what they do have is a certain like brilliance of like, how in the world did you do that? So I'll give you like examples of each. An example of like a true craftsperson from like a songwriter's perspective would be Leonard Cohen, who it takes him years to write Hallelujah. It takes him years to do like, so many different things where you're like, as a songwriter, he's going back to it. He's perfecting it. He's like that type of artist. Or you can get, you know, really uh, someone like, I would say like Paul Simon or someone like Paul McCartney, who at first they wake up from a dream with, you know, a melody in their head. And you're like, how in the world do you do that? And it's kind of like, is it lucky? What is it? It's a supernova. Now, the thing that makes both of those artists who start from a place of supernova into this thing that transcends is they work on their craft. They don't just get stuck in, I'm creative when I have a dream. But they actually, like Paul, like Paul Simon, becomes a better guitar player, becomes a better songwriter, becomes like all of those things. The same thing with uh, Leonard Cohen is like, in order to do that, and you're usually coming from like the craftsperson place, you actually have to take more risks. You actually have to keep giving yourself deadlines to do things. You have to, you have to do things in a different way. If you get stuck in the left brain, left brain or right brain portion of creating or whatever comes natural to you and you think, I'll just rely on my craftsmanship. 
you usually won't take that many creative risks because it really sucks to, to feel like any sense of critique. Or if you, on the opposite side, uh, the only time that you do anything creatively is when you feel like doing something creative or you uh, totally just rely on talent and you never work on your talent, then you'll get stuck in these like little creative boxes um, to where you'll hit limits, you'll hit the ceiling faster. And all of the great musicians or creators I know either come from a place where they're working on their craft, but then they're also working on their taste. And that's the tastemaker's job where you're like, oh wow, the person that... So if you're a really good musician, I'll give you an example. My brother, Michael, totally comes from a craftsperson place of starting to create. He would practice hours and hours and hours and play Phil Keggy stuff. And like when he was 12 years old, he's like virtuoso guitar player. But the only music that he listened to was like Bela Fleck and old jazz <laughs> records. He never heard Beatles records until he was like 25, yeah. right? He never heard Led Zeppelin or, or different things. And you'd be like, oh, wow, what that does to your playing. And then also styles that you can play or whatever it is. Like you guys at least have like this rich musical foundation of taste, right? Like, which is amazing. Um, a lot of people, especially like this is a church podcast in the oh, church man. world, like what is their like musical um, taste making yeah, yeah. sensibilities? And when you listen to like Christian music now, the reason why people a lot of times will complain is like, well, on one level, there are styles of Christian music where the tastemakers are who and why, and there's a whole thing to that in CCM. And then on the other side of it, you're like, there's actually some badass, amazing, like gospel and old, like listen to the 70s, listen to like all those records. It's incredible. Um, but the problem is, who are the tastemakers in churches that we went to, <laughs> like white evangelical or, or those types of things? And you're like, well, the music sucks because of the tastemaking. And then now they want anyone to be able to play anything at church to where even then you don't have to be good at anything. You just got to be able to play like six chords and you can cable everything. Right? And so the artistry, as far as like um, being a craftsperson on your instrument, doesn't really matter anymore. No, it's, it's interesting because John, you know, so I'm, we're, we're older than you. I'm a, I'm pushing 50. I'll be 50 this year. But when I was coming up in my teen years, you know, we were so heavily involved in church. And for some reason, my, 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 my dad in particular drew this really arbitrary line. We were only supposed to listen to Christian music unless it was old, in which case it was all fine. So we could listen to the Beatles and we could listen, but anything like current, my, my mom was pretty hardcore about, listen, we, we need to listen to Christian music. So um, John and I had to like secretly buy all of our quote unquote secular cassette tapes and records. Thank God for cassettes coming around. They were much smaller and easier to hide. Um, <laughs> but I do remember sticking records inside of Pat Boone, you know, vinyl sleeves. But, um, but, but, but then in like in my teen years, when CCM starts to really become popular, everything was a cheap imitation of a band that already existed. So the youth pastors would be like, dude, yeah. you like, uh, you like Rat, man, you'll love this band. You know, boy, if you really like Metallica, you like Judas Priest, you're really going to love Saint. They sound just like him, only they sing about Jesus. And the creativity was non-existent. It was just cheap, cheap imitations of much, much better bands. 
And for some reason, no ability to differentiate between, you know, good artistry and just marketing, you know. You know what I'm talking about, John? You, you, you struck a memory. And I don't know if you're going to remember I, this. I so, will. I'm um, just kidding. I'm traumatized um, by so it. <laughs> our mother owned a, owned a bakery when we were in junior high and high school years. And so uh, it was in uh, like a little plaza. And in that plaza was also the Christian bookstore. And so Nat and I both worked at the bakery and we were paid enough money to buy either a cassette or a, later on a CD a week. That's That was our pay. But in that Christian bookstore, back in the back corner on some shelf was a book. And the book was, if you like this band, you will like this Christian band. I mean, it was just oh a full book. Um, like, if you like, um, oh, I can't remember now who, but it'd be like, if you like Judas Priest, uh, here's a Christian band for you, Saint. Uh, if you liked um, Todd Rundgren, here's a band that sounds like him. Uh, if you like, and it was just, and I would go into that book every week when I got my money to buy a CD and find the artists who sounded like the band I wanted to listen to because we had to stick within this Christian rock world. And so uh, I just think this is a quick question. Just give me your top three, no order, just top three Christian bands from that, from that time period. Cause I, I think I could go real quick if I need to. Oh my gosh. Let's go. Um, uh, okay. The top on that, unfortunately, it's going to have to be Striper. Because uh, uh, I knew you were going to say Striper. All right, I, maybe we'll do this round robin. Can I go DeGarmo and Keith? DeGarmo and oh, <laughs> Marlon Lefevre, or is it Lefevre and Broken Heart? Uh, let's see. What about? Um, I was. We were really into a band called. Remember the band called the the Daniel Band? Yeah. Yes, you I gotta run from the darkness. See, I can still sing the yeah, songs. Right. I don't know did all those songs. Know, did you guys know Whiteheart? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Whiteheart, oh, yeah. man. My, my friend Brennan, who plays with me for all the brilliant stuff, his dad was was the main founder. No of way! Whiteheart. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, like, I mean, we uh, man, um, who else was there? There's uh, the Resurrection Band, or later on, they became the Res Band. Yeah. Um, but you yeah. know, it's funny because uh, I, I was transitioning from a more like I was a pretty stable just rock and roll guy, and then if somebody gave me a DeGarmo and Key cassette. Commander Sozo in the Charge of the Light Brigade. And I was like, you know yeah. what? I'll give DeGarmo and Key some props. They were actually pretty decent, you know? They they, they put out a couple different things. And then they, they, they're they responsible for kind of broadening my musical horizons a little bit, at least within that genre. Yeah. But there were some really bad metal bands, man. But here's what's interesting. I was going to ask you about this too, because, you know, we talk about, you know, respect for, you know, the artistry. I'm not a big metal guy anymore, um, but some of the best probably like early 2000s, mid 2000s um, metal bands that were coming out were Christian. Um, they weren't being yeah. put out on Christian labels, but um, As I Lay Dying and, um, oh gosh, and Haste the Day. And there were some others that were just, man, they were just solid bands, period, who happened to have a little bit yeah. of a spiritual bent to their to their lyrics. But um, I saw them as some of the first artists to start to really um, blur the lines between quote unquote Christian music and secular music because their artistry was still top notch. You know, when a guy can play, you know, double bass at that speed for, you know, an entire record, I'm impressed. All right. I don't care who you are. That's amazing. Um, but that's what, and that's what I see, um, in, in bands like, like what you guys do. Uh, I, I, I love the fact that, 
I mean, I know, I know you come from a place of faith, but you're not beating people over the head with it. And that's what, what CCM for so long has, has, has insist that their artists do essentially. It seems like just beat people over the head with Jesus. Make sure you say it this many times. Uh, make sure it's very proselytizing and very, and I'm like, man, it's just doing a disservice to, to an entire audience of, of, of people who want to consume music. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, for brilliance, it's a different thing where we've kind of, we try not, I know this sounds odd, but it, because we're, um, the point of the music is around art that inspires empathy. We try to steer away from, um, religious language altogether, unless it's, unless it's something where we're like, uh, like a questioning type of thing. Like now that doesn't mean, but I'll give you an example of like the, the idea of um, the last like full suite that we put out um, is very spiritual and has a lot of different themes that are very spiritual to me. But intentionally are, are going to be, uh, the, it's not a Christian album. However, for a lot, I also work at a church and have to write original church music and do that. And for that, what I've tried to do is actually really dive into the religious language of what do I mean by that? So instead of just like stock phrases um, that I throw in for that, um, I'll try to dive into something and and actually, um, so like one of the songs that I wrote last year for our church was called Quantum Gravity where we sing uh, at church and it, it follows this large allegory of the wonder that I would find within um, different things that we talk about, um, gravity and different things that we try to understand that we talk about quantum mecha- mechanics is that that same place of wonder I find within the aspect of what it means for God to be relational and that sense of wonder of if God is the way that I talk about God in Trinity. And so I know this sounds odd and a little bit um, esoteric, but I, I feel like as a writer diving into larger, um, especially for, for like spiritual writing is diving deeper into theological issues, but then trying to uh, really wrestle through in poetically what those mean for a community. Um, and I know that it sounds odd, but I'm, I'm way more into that or to hymns for our specific community of that place yeah. of law and wonder than I am normally of like a top 10 CCLI. For sure. Christian contemporary yeah. worship song. What? Well, that um, and so that's an odd place as a songwriter. Just sometimes, you know, being but you try to try to wrestle with those themes and try to uh, and then make it sing. Yeah. Well, and it, it, <laughs> it, it, just, it, it strikes something you said earlier about. Um, so I'm I'm kind of dovetailing a couple different conversations now. It seems like so so talking about these broad sort of theological themes and then 
versus trying to come up with something that's sort of practical and livable is like that difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? I mean, it's, it's fine to talk about God. It's fine to have all these, you know, lofty musings about God. But where does this come down and actually meet us and change the way that we interact with the world and interact with people around us? And that so that practice is, is so important. So it's it's easy. I could write a I could write a CCM worship song. Um, and like you say, I can I can pull out the the stock phrases and the things that everyone knows and, you know, pull out those th- and I've tried, and it always leaves me going, yeah, that, that, the world doesn't need another one of those. There's plenty of those. Um, so I, my, my difficulty and where I recognize the artistry is being able to say what you want to say without without having to just be so overt about it, finding new and interesting ways to talk about Trinity, talk about how God is relational, talk about how, I love the, <laughs> even your, even the song Turning Over Tables, uh, the love is turning over tables. I love that. What a cool, I mean, it's not a, not a huge twist, but it, it, it got me, you know? Um, so there's so much of what you do that I, I, I feel like um, does do that thing of, of, of talk about complex, big issues, but, but do them in such a way that's relatable to even somebody outside of the faith. When I tell somebody, you know, love is turning over the tables, I, I think they get what we're talking about, don't you? Yeah, I, I feel like um, as a songwriter, specifically for today, like, and it depends on what, like, what is the, <laughs> I always like to ask, like, if you're writing a song, the question of like, what is this? What is this for? What is this about? And if it's just a moment of um, personal, biographical, whatever it is, that art matters. It's not like it doesn't need to be there. I'm not trying to say, but that's when I'm writing for um, our, my faith community, I'm not writing as like the first person experience. I'm not writing just from my experience or, this is this is how I feel, um, but then usually wrestling with larger issues, um, and because wrestling with larger issues a lot of times can um, then maybe say things with a different type of courage that I don't even have to say just personally. So that's that's where you know you. Um, and I don't, it's hard as a songwriter not to just like quote lyrics back at someone of like, well, this is what I mean by this. But for, for me right now in this moment where we're at, one of the things that songs do is, especially for communities, they, they point kind of the direction or the theology or the moral imagination of like where we are at and where we're going. And a lot of times the where we're at doesn't address pain. It doesn't address like um, where we're actually at. It just talks about, you know, like empty, uh, either like platitudes or like religious language. And then as far as we're going, if all the hope is just like essentially like an escapism or a version of heaven or, you know, the kingdom return, what does that even mean? Like, I can say on one end, like, maybe you know what it means, but if I was going to ask all three of us, 
what hope looks like specifically even in a Christian lens, like we could all have a different answer here. And, and so I like to kind of like, not as a writer, just say like black and white, this is what this means, but actually leave enough space and mystery for interpretation because good art, the difference between propaganda and good art is that like, it can't just be black and white. This is the clear interpretation. There has to be room for you to go, you know, why Mona Lisa is such a powerful piece of artwork is not because I think it's like the most beautiful or best piece of artwork. It's because you can look at her and say, I think she's sad. And you can look at her and say, no, I think her eyes are following me. No, I think she's happy. I think she's, it's also incomplete. There are points, there's so much stuff about it, but there's so much to wrestle with. And a good song, a good album, a good place of like starting with somewhere is like, is the person that is engaging with the art actually able to wrestle with that? Or is it just like black and white propaganda? And usually spiritual music in evangelical or post-evangelical contexts is pretty like black and white in the type of language that it uses. Um, there's not a lot of room for like wrestling with it. And then not only that space of wrestling with it, I think that when you're writing, then the, the other like complex thing becomes, how do I say something that also is, um, it invites me in, but it also like challenges me to be something or like there's some type of calling that like, I'm not fully there yet. We're not fully there yet. We understand, but this is the hope, right? That something will be able to actually change, that something will be able to actually heal. That something, and those are the, the things as a songwriter that I try to wrestle with within a spiritual, like congregational standpoint. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for Nat. But as 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 I was going through this whole deconstruction, whatever you want to call it, my my story is a lot more convoluted than just that. But let's narrow it down to just deconstruction for this for this moment, I guess. But one of the things that kind of just fell apart for me as I was deconstructing my faith and and kind of just blowing it all up was was Christian music, um, and part of that was um because so much of it is specifically in worship music is so in your face and so in your uh, this is these this is the path to make yourself whole this is the path to um praise god this is the only way we can do it and when it comes to like music like yours i feel like it's it's that's not that's not your first thought behind your music um and you know i might be kind of just making stuff up as they go along here. <laughs> Probably. But, uh, what, what, what I feel with, with like your type of music and, and artists like you is that you, you've, you've invited us along for the ride as opposed to, I'm going to give you the instructions on how to be a better Christian, which is what I feel a lot of contemporary worship music is doing. It's just giving us a, like a basis of how to be uh, better, yeah. how to, how to, how to, how to worship God better, how to accept our place as a dirty, rotten sinner, and just hope that, um, maybe if we sing this song enough and listen to the pastor enough that we're going to, we'll somehow come out on the other end, a, a better, decent human being. And it just doesn't, in my opinion, it just doesn't work like that. And so artists like you give us the opportunity to lean into your music 
and come up with our interpretation of what you're writing. And it seems like, at least for me, in this post-evangelical, post-fundamentalist, post-Christian in a lot of ways, uh, it's, it's artists like you who give me hope that I can maybe connect to anything that's um, quote-unquote Christian music at all, if any of that made sense. <laughs> it did. I, I, I wonder if the caricature of that, and you're calling it like a bit of a caricature of like, we can't love every song, you can't love, you know, I, I understand that. But the, I wonder if, if we thought about some of the lyrics that, songs that we sing of, of what it does to us. So just as you said, um, Don, one of the things that you talked about, that theme that came up was if you're always singing songs about how wretched of a human being you are. Right, right. Um, or you're always singing songs on um, a certain version of atonement. Right. You tend to either think of God that way, which you can be like, I don't think of God like this. But then I'm going to sing about creating a God, like that, like we create these uh, caricatures of God. So you're like, you might be like, oh, I'm kind of deconstructing. I don't really believe this. But then you always have to go sing this. There's something that it like tears the soul apart because your actions are not lining up with the ways that you think. And as far as like spirituality goes, the the whole idea of integrity is when your when you fully as a person can line up with what like you think, act, believe it's, it's on, it's on step together. But when you're like, I, so but this happens with everything. We pick on it with religion, but it happens with everything. If, if I think about like right now, one of the existential like crises of being an American in the 21st century is like, on one end I could be like, Hey, I'm, I know that global warming is real. Right. I know that it's a real threat. I know from these things that like, I'd be like, this is bad. And I want to do my part in trying to make this situation better. So I could know that in my mind, but in my daily lifestyle, like I still get on jet airplanes to go play some shows, right? Which is terrible for the environment or I eat meat, which is like, Part of the small, like, it's not just such a small problem. It is a problem, like, the way we talk about our carbon footprint, or I do. And you you realize all these things, and then I can see that, like, I also have four kids. That's the other thing. Like, let's just call me, like, hypocrite. <laughs> David Gunger is the big hypocrite. Because I believe in global warming, and I believe in these things, that it's not good. And yet, I have the worst possible thing for humanity when it comes to global warming, which is a ton of children. I have four kids. Right. And so within that, I'm going to feel tension in a certain way because in a manner of like integrity, does my belief or what I know line up with how I act or does how I act really because I know the problem, does it actually change the way I act in a lot of ways? So it swings both ways and it's not something that I'd just be like good or bad. It just, happens all the time for a lot of times for people who grew up in a faith tradition. And we, you know, I think there's so many things that are beautiful that that faith tradition probably did for both of you, that even if you were like total atheist, totally, so you could still see 
some good in having certain foundational things within a faith tradition. But then those practices or those songs you sing, those things, it really does shape you. It shapes the way that you view God and the way you view humanity. Specifically in a Christian lens, if you're going, the way that I see my neighbor is the way that you see God. And you don't want to be in a place, well, maybe you do, but I know for me, I don't ever want to be in a place where I feel like I'm nicer than like the loving God of the Bible. Like somehow I would be more forgiving or more merciful or more whatever. It just feels so weird to be in a context where you're talking about grace and those things and you then are singing songs. You're like, man, I don't, I wouldn't really want to, or even that idea of like, wait, so God needs me to sing to him? Like, do I need people to sing to me all the time? Like, <laughs> yeah. How, how great is my God? God? Yeah. Yeah. How great is John? How great <laughs> is how John? Sing with like, me how dude, great. I mean, I like it a little bit, but like it also gets creepy for all eternity <laughs> just to like be singing to John. Like some of these narratives that just get super, super freaking trippy and weird where you're like, how narcissistic. Yeah is the version of God or is this weird is this version of who we think the divine is and what that is. And I feel like songs, part of the reason why we think that way is because we're trained in our own little, you know, religious context or little tribes to this is what the music that God likes and God's going <laughs> to want us to sing for all the time to do this. And this was like, dude, give me hell. Give me, teach me how to play the guitar with the devil. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That version of heaven right, sucks. Right. No, it's, oh, wow. I've, I don't know if you, have you led worship? Before, as I led worship in church for years and years, uh, I got to the point in the last several years where I just, I, if I if I need to sing a song, I, I've changed lyrics. I'm like, no, nah, I don't buy that. Yeah. I'm not doing that. I'm not singing. He gives and takes away. That's bullshit. That that comes from you know. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put Job's words in my mouth as I sing to God. That's just not gonna happen. Um, I just actually had this experience with a, a guy in our church asked me to sing this song. Um, and it's a hill song. It's a. Uh, it's called the Scandal of Grace. Right. It's a good song. It's decent. There's one line yeah. in there that I won't sing. You know, uh, this is uh, something about um, the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace. You died in my place. I'm like I don't believe in substitutionary atonement. I'm not going to sing that line. So I'm gonna. So I came up with a new lyric. I'm just not. But I sang the song, and he was like, "Yeah, yeah that was pretty good." Um, what's with that one line there? I'm like, "Well, I'm not singing that. I don't. It doesn't line up with my theology." Yeah. And and I got to a place where what you just said resonated really deeply, which is, I cannot, you know, I can't conceive of God this way, and then stand on a stage or on a platform someplace and sing about him in a way that's completely arbitrary to the way that I. I just can't do it. the 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 dissonance is too much for me. And as a pastor, I won't. I won't. I just won't project project those images to, of God out as well. Um, but what you said, another thing you said that was interesting was that you know the difference between art and propaganda, and that's what I feel like um, when I when I push back on modern worship music. You've put you've just put words to my what I've been feeling, which is it's, it's propaganda. You know, let's just. Uh, you know, rather than lead people to a place or suggest that we've, we've told them what to think, how to believe, how to feel. And, and then we've put in a form that they can repeat ad nauseum until they walk out the door thinking that's, that's, that's the way God is. And so, 
yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, for me, that was that was one of the the, the linchpins for me, just having to step away from church and walk away from church was I either was playing music that didn't align with my theology anymore. You know, when I was given the the opportunities to preach and Nat and I have discussed this before, I would come right up to a certain point, but I I couldn't step over that line into what would be considered heresy or heretical uh, teachings because even, even though I was changing my theology, I was working for a pastor who I, um, liked we were friends and i didn't i didn't want to step on any toes so you know you do you kind of you have to you walk that line and you and you uh and you get to that point where i just had to make the honest decision and and, and say hey my theology no, no longer lines up i think the best the best option for everyone involved is that i just step away and so um it's it's a it's a there's a level of honesty i think right where you have to get to the point where you're honest with yourself and you can say uh, I I have to figure out what 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 I'm thinking before I can even have a ten, have a any idea of putting that out into the world and and explaining to someone else as you know as as we are deconstructing or as we are evolving in our theology or evolving in our faith or whatever we want to call it right there's a point where we we have to be honest with ourselves before we can even put any kind of substance out into the world well and. David, for you, if you if you don't mind me asking, so you said your church sort of transitioned or began a transition process um, into a more sort of historic apostolic understanding of of the gospel. So, uh, do you mind walking me through? Was that a, was that an intentional process? Did somebody? Because I noticed that for me, man, it was my knowledge of historic Christianity was lacking, and my church is making is making a very similar transition. But I was curious what you had to say about that transition. I'm just curious what 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 was the the impetus for that change because I know I mean for me the more I read and the more I you know the, what 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 gets exposed is my you know I had a severe deficit when it came to historic Christianity so everything you know I, I'm a very modern evangelical and and we don't we don't talk about <laughs> we don't talk about liturgical stuff we don't you know uh, my first exposure to any of this was in my late 30s when I went on a, a spiritual retreat, and and I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm I'm dealing with people who are who are more mainline denominational, and so we have these liturgical church services. But I started digging into the the ancient church, the early church, um, more of the apostolic, his, you know, the the desert fathers, and I was just curious if that was uh, something that was sort of intentional, or you? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So. All right, so that, I'm, I'm going to reframe that through the lens of my my professor friend, Father Claire. So for him, the threefold path was purification. The second one would be illumination. The third one would be union. So for us growing up, the purification zone would have been this this uh, in an evangelical way. You can know God. Like God loves you, right? In the very basic thing of like this root of uh, a very strong foundation uh, in our understanding uh, of my childhood growing up that like God loves you and you can know God. And then the illumination period of for as far as uh, our church and specifically, you know, 
people during that time, I feel like was illuminating to see the different myths and the different ways that we thought we were special. And it's almost that thing of like, you're not so special. But <laughs> like, yeah. that zone of like, you know, and it felt deconstructing and it felt like on one point, you know, this was during the heyday of like, I don't mean this bad or it's not positive or negative, would just be like, it was really the heyday of like Velvet Elvis and Rob yeah. Bell and, you know, emerging church world and like all of those things where it was like kind of a cultural evangelical illumination season of things and naming things and where they found um, union for all of those things was that um, especially in light of things like the 21st century and technology and as you were saying, like from a historical lens, what is rooted the Desert Fathers were huge in that for our church. Really like a more Catholic imagination compared to a Protestant imagination. Now, you can totally argue, and I totally would see it. I could be like, yeah, and there's even another one where which would be like Orthodox versus Catholic imagination. But for the sake of like our Protestant minds, like this thing of like, okay, as you were as you were saying, like, what is the point even of uh, if you're a pastor or, or those things, like, why do you exist? Why, what is the point of like, are you supposed to essentially just be like a club? And this is not bad. I'm not trying to, are you like the owner of a gym where you're like, you know, everybody comes to our local gym membership and it's like a really good thing because people belong and do that. And that's totally cool. I'm not like dissing that at all. Or are you like, what is the, what is the point of the priesthood of like administering the sacraments? And then even then, because like in 21st century, um, you know, spirituality for the most part, and this is an interesting conversation during the pandemic is like, we can experience church now digital. Like we don't even have to, you can uh, listen to any music you want. You could go on a bike ride and listen to any music and be like, this is my form of worship. Or you could do anything that's devotional. But what makes specifically Christian communities unique in their worship together of why they want to join together and why they want to be together? Really, it would come down, like you can listen to a podcast over anything. You can, you know, do anything like that. But the sacraments, you can't. You actually need community. Um, That's where they're unique. And for Eucharist, and specifically even around things like I know it sounds odd, but like, man, those big things like um, baptisms and weddings and funerals and different things where you're like, this is why, like, the priesthood is actually like, it can be a really beautiful thing, even for communities. Um, Our church was drawn back into that. So my dad was a pastor in like a kind of classic evangelical realm. He went through all of this in the early 2000s and um, ended up, he grew up Catholic. He ended up having another Catholic experience where he started going to mass then for years and was a part, he was an evangelical pastor who was Catholic. He went to mass every morning and uh, he also pastored at an evangelical church in Tulsa. And then uh, he ended up kind of deciding what 
where was the path that he wanted to go out to. He found this organization through, it's called the CEEC, which is, uh, it's the charismatic Episcopal, uh, church, which has a weird 19, like, uh, I think it was in the eighties, a very weird beginning where, uh, they had, it was an ecumenical movement, um, with an Orthodox uh, bishop and a Catholic bishop. Uh, it sounds like a joke. Like it sounds like, like a joke. <laughs> they walked into a bar um, and they, <laughs> yeah, so it's like they we're in an ecumenical meeting and then like uh classic 1980s style, like very charismatic renewal things started to happen with people like praying in tongues and stuff. And out of this kind of birth, this thing called the CEC, which is all around the world, but it's a, they actually, have an apostolic tradition. And it's funny because it kind of unites, it unites Catholics and Orthodox with a very evangelical kind of world. And so their church follows, and I was at the time at that church, it, they were in that process. My, my dad is now a bishop in that church, but then their pastor at the church that I used to work at is a priest. So they, they fully did the like kind of, non-denominational into a full-on denomination, you know, into a full-on. So that was a long process for them, a process of about 20 years. Um, for me, I am now, I work at a community that we would, uh, we'd call it interdenominational. It wouldn't be non-denominational in the sense of like, we actually, um, we follow an Episcopal kind of Anglican framework of the liturgy and spiritual practices, you'd be like, you guys sure sound and look Episcopal. Um, however, um, it's outside of the framework of kind of the diocese and the nature of that. So it started as more non-denominational, that very interdenominational from like a standpoint of people in New York and even interfaith of we'll have a lot of people who um, would not consider themselves uh, Christians, but then are intrigued by Jesus or by that story and kind of get involved within the community. And one of the large things, I know you, you talked about, Nat, your theme of your church being an open table. We have one of the things that we do every week, and I can send this to you, is a liturgy around um, all are welcome at the table of God, every man, woman, yeah, that was because uh, that was the point of, it's interesting because you going back to something you said early on in the conversation, resonated again because um that's that's the story of our little church you know i've been in ministry off and on some in some form or function for 30 years you know and uh like john i got to the point where you know i i just can't you know the 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 phrase that gets kicked around a lot in in evangelical circles is you know it's the pastor that that carries the vision and basically you get on board with that vision or you shouldn't work there and it's true. I, I actually, I agree with that. You know, if, if, if that's your paradigm is that the, you know, the pastor, you know, is, I, I don't actually agree with that paradigm, but if that is your paradigm, then you probably, your best bet is to walk away from that. If you can't, if I, if you can't support it. So, um, like John, I, I was invited to preach from time to time and, but I always felt the tension of, okay, well, I really can't say this cause that's going to get me in trouble. And I can't say this. I can't suggest that God, you know, really loves all gay people. Um, I can't really suggest that God's plan might be to actually redeem all of his good creation and not throw us all into some subterranean torture chamber. Um, like I had to dance, I had to, I had to play too many mental gymnastics and, you know, so anyway, my, my, my solution was to plant my own church where at the very least I could say what I wanted to say and I could, you know, and when we, 
when we conceived of it with a, a couple of friends of ours that, that we did this with, um, we decided we would, we would, uh, we would center the whole thing around the Eucharist. And so then when you said that, I was like, yeah, that was us too. I'm like, I, I was born and raised in churches that did, you know, we practiced communion spottily at best, you know, once a quarter, once a month, whatever. Um, it was always done in a very hurried fashion. Um, and it was always very, very somber. And, you know, the point of the Eucharist was, and we would have never used Eucharist. That's way too Catholic a word. We would have never said that. Um, the point of the Lord's Supper um, is that you are reminded of what a ginormous piece of shit you are and that, you know, you did this to Jesus and you owe him a debt. And, you know, and in my experience, so we, we've gone way, we've come full circle with this. We're like, listen, the Eucharist, the point of the Eucharist is, is not that, you know, it's the root word of the of Eucharist is charis, it's grace. It's the, it's the demonstration of what God was willing to endure to reconnect and reunite and redeem humanity. Um, and I see that as a universal act of love he did for all of us. Um, and also as a, as a point of unification for all of Christendom. I mean, it, no matter what denomination you are, 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 or aren't a part of at some point, this is still a practice. It's still a sacrament within, you know, and across all denominational divides. So we've, we've implemented, you know, we do, we do some, you know, we have some liturgical elements to our church that's very, anyway, so I just thought that was an interesting sort of dovetail because I had that same experience, you know, as I was wrestling with what church would look like going forward, a little mixture of the old and the new seemed like a good idea. John, of course, is over here going, ah, to hell with all that. Church is, church is for chumps. <laughs> Who needs church? This isn't church. Oh, wait a minute, that's what the podcast is. <laughs> Well, then we we do that as a bit of a tongue in cheek. Um, I'm not even sure we intended it at first to be tongue in cheek, but it's turned out to be that way as we've gotten pushback from so many people that come on the podcast who are like, what do you mean this isn't church? We're having church. I'm like, yeah, we know that's kind of the point is, you know, is we've been told for so long that that church has been so narrowly defined as this, 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 it happens in this place at this time and that's church. I run a coffee shop in my church six days a week. We're selling coffee yeah. and um, creating space for people to connect and have conversations. And we're having church seven days a week here, man. Um, just one day a week, we call it service. But it's great that we've carved out places, I, any place where people connect, you know, and and have a chance to see each other for who they really are. I think that's a, I think that's church, man. So, but like I said, we've had a few people like Paul Young who likes to talk about like, what do you mean this isn't church? This is church. So <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you coming on. I, thank you for being so generous with your time. I know we kept you longer than the hour that we said, but man, there's just so much good stuff to talk about. And um, maybe we can connect again in the future. i uh, sure we'd like to hear more about the for project. Sure. We didn't even get a chance to talk about Telos. Um, we can talk about that some other time, but yeah, yeah. I know you're a busy dude and you've got places to go and people to see and but man it, it means an awful lot that you were willing to carve out some time for us today i appreciate that yeah absolutely of course guys great to great to meet you and yeah, i'll talk all right, to you later. take it easy man thank you for listening to this is not church be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice if you would like to partner with us visit patreon.com slash this is not church where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.